Welcome to Discursion Podcast, where we discuss recently released and or restored films on DVD and Blu-ray. You are joined by Stephen and... And Dominic. I, sorry, I, I, was, I, I was making a noise there because I was thinking that our definition of recent, I think, is quite capacious. Um... <laughs> it is. Yeah. So today we're discussing Mona Lisa, um, which isn't, you know, it wasn't released on blu-ray this year even actually dominic i think i won this one we won this one at a film quiz at the watershed in bristol um two oh, years ago is that when we did we come third or second oh third. that's right yeah and it was the it was the kind of runner-up prize and the one of the distributors or one of the guys that works with with arrow was was there and wanted to talk to us afterwards because he likes to check on who who gets the prize? Oh, you should let him know about the podcast. Got nice. Yeah, I should. Um, but I suppose I should also tell the listeners, dear listeners, that uh, this film is kind of part of an ongoing series as well. So there's the, the, the theme within the podcast theme of looking at crime films, which we've been doing since, oh gosh, I don't know, uh, a few months now. We're on we're on episode 13 and we've, we're, a good, we're a good four episodes into this theme now. Um Mona Lisa is a 1986 film, so it's one of the earlier examples. Um, we've also looked at 1990s and kind of more recent 21st century crime films. It's also a British film, so it's it's the first British crime film that we've talked about, um, directed by Neil Jordan, um, starring Kathy Tyson and, and Bob Hoskins. Um, do you want to have a go at a plot summary, Dominic? I think you You've kind of got uh, this one uh, nailed down. We had a chat uh, before about yeah, this one. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's we meet Bob Hoskins at the beginning, who is is has just been released from prison. Um, he's clearly you know involved with uh, with the mob. Would it be fair to say? I think one could describe you know yeah yeah whatever the mob means. Um, but he's been away for I don't know a good portion of time, seven years, something like that. I think it is mentioned in in the film, but a good number of years, and he's somewhat uh, distressed at what he sees as the changes that have taken place in 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 London uh, while he was safely inside. So you know he doesn't like the fact that. There are lots of black children, you know, running around on the streets where he um he used to live, uh, etc. So yeah, so we get some sense of aspects of his character from that, and he uh he's assigned the job um by Michael Caine, who's his uh, boss, although he seems reluctant to actually meet him, um, which I think may 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 be significant, but he's assigned the job of um of driving around um oh god what's her name this is a terrible plot summary i I mean she's played by kathy tyson but uh, what's her character's name simone simone i don't even think i've given bob hoskins his name i feel this is one of those films where i really you know like you always talk talk about humphrey bogart i find it hard not to just talk about bob hoskins well Dominic, Bob Hoskins' name is easy because it's George, like this chivalric St. George. Ah, is there something about England? Right. Knight in shining right. armour. It's a very English name. Uh, that, yeah, that's interesting. Um, right, so yes, yeah, so the the um, uh, the main thrust of the narrative really is that, yeah, he's, um, he's given this job of 
of uh, driving Simone around. There's issues of his racism comes up again um, in his relation to her. It turns out that she's some sort of high-class prostitute or has now become some kind of high-class prostitute. And Bob Hoskins seems to become increasingly horrified by what he discovers about what's going on in that world which she's she's a part of um and she tells him the story of her her, you know her kind of backstory um and there's a friend of hers who so she's managed to kind of escape a more kind of brutal life of prostitution to live the more relatively comfortable uh, life which she lives now which involves you know, rich men in big houses and grand hotels, but she wants she wants to rescue this friend of hers, um, and so you know, Bob Hoskins sort of thinking that that they're falling in love, or kind of gradually admitting to himself that he thinks that that's what's happening, happening kind of nobly. Uh, yeah, he thinks um, kind of takes on this mission, and then the film culminates again to not avoid spoilers as we tend to not to do on this podcast so he he does rescue uh this character who's called Kathy so it's mildly confusing because we have an actress and a character played by a different actress also called Kathy but he rescues the young Kathy but then but but then discovers that uh in fact in fact Simone is is in love with her and they have a have a lesbian relationship and so there was you know there ain't going to be any future between between Simone and him, um, and it sort of ends with Simone shooting a couple of uh, a couple of the baddies. She shoots both Michael Caine and uh, and her pimp, who's played by Clark Peters of The Wire fame. Uh, yeah, yeah, Lester Freeman of The Wire many years later. Um, but uh, but then and then she's kind of abandoned by the film almost, right? She's sort of left in in that situation. There's these two, she's killed the two villains. There she is. They're in Brighton at this point, but. Uh, she has her lover back but Hoskins is horrified George is, is is horrified by what he's discovered but then he's given a kind of a kind of surrogate sort of family ending so it ends with him sort, sort of walking off with his his best mate who's played uh, played by Robbie Coltrane and also his um his teenage daughter who he's estranged from her mother but he's also been trying through the film to uh, re-establish a relationship you know, with his daughter, so you know the two men and and the daughter, you know, walk off into the sunset. Is um, that's slightly unfair, but that's kind of the point at which the film ends. It's it's a nice it's a nice play on the gangster genre because obviously you can have different types of gangster committing different types of of crime and different kinds of shady dealings. Um, it just so happens this one links quite nicely with that overall theme of of Hoskins trying to be a a father mm. figure or a husband mm. figure. This does mm. link quite nicely to The Long Good Friday um, and other kind of gangster films as well. I mean, you see that paternalistic theme certainly in The Godfather, which is released around the same time. Mm. Godfather, The Godfather sequels, you know, it lasted quite a few years, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's something there as well about um, how audiences in the 80s would have perceived this this film maybe as as a Hoskins film and maybe his aura kind of carrying over um, from, yeah. from an earlier film to, to the next. And Michael Caine is part of that story too, you know, thinking about yes. his, his past in in films like The Icarus File, you know, where he plays the um, very 
confident, kind of rude, naughty, working class boy um, mm. who's kind of... Yeah, I mean... Uh, yeah. Sorry, I just feel I feel like Michael Caine's character is quite interestingly... Uh, yeah, he's a different variation on it, isn't he? Because... Not the one hasn't seen Michael Caine, but, but sort of being quite as evil as he appears to be in in this film is almost it's almost it's almost the twist maybe twist is the wrong word but the sort of variation which one gets with hoskins in the opposite in the opposite direction yeah you know one tends to think of michael kane as being tough but being kind of um yes more of a like you say like a no-nonsense more of a kind of Almost like he's, you know, he's like the the sort of the East End James Bond, you know, <laughs> it's like that kind of thing. So him being, yeah, him being kind of quite as, um, I think perhaps one takes a while to wonder, you know, yeah, one is invited to wonder whether he's going to be, I don't know, he's going to turn out to have other sides to his character, you know, you know, just because it's Michael Caine and you don't, you don't want Michael Caine to be quite so much of it's out and out bastard you know <laughs> sure i suppose in get carter he was he was the he was the hero there but uh playing a different character as mortwell here but all but having the sinister dark qualities of get carter uh in mona lisa which is otherwise um, i think quite a soft we'd say quite a soft gangster film insofar as it, mm. there's not huge amounts of violence um, it's more of a no. show. It's more of a showstopper or sort of spectacular moment when there is a, a actual yeah. kind of fisticuffs. Um, so Michael Caine brings a bit of that, I suppose, action as well, doesn't he? And I only realised on yes. watching this film just how tall Michael Caine is in relation to Bob Hoskins. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. He is. Yes. <laughs> it's not quite like those moments watching Taskmaster, as I have been. We watched the new series recently when Greg Davis stands up next to anybody else and he's about about twice their height but uh, there's still yeah there's a market and that's kind of played with isn't it yeah absolutely you know again in an obvious way but you know with the power relations um yeah i think that market it plays into these sort of notions of revelation that the film kind kind of works with because that's something that i think is very interesting about this film but i'm i'd admit to being slightly hesitant as to whether it's completely well either whether it's completely successful or having some sort of reservations about what it's trying to do because it seems to be important that um the bob hoskins character is genuinely kind of shocked to his core by quite how how brutal the world of underage prostitution is so it sort of brings in this theme of innocence um and sort of what that means um and that's quite interesting in some ways because i think it i think one of the things it it does is it um interestingly works with you know, the hoskins character's racism and these kind of things so his his sense that things have gone to the dog since he's been inside relates perhaps i think although i'm not sure this is made explicit but i think it comes across quite clearly that there's a sense that as it were we used to be gentlemen gangsters and now 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 that now the gloves are off and it's just kind 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 of sheer power and kind and kind of evil um and i think it's quite interesting the sense to which the film indicates that perhaps this is this is just a fantasy you know or a, you know he, he 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 had allowed himself not 
not to kind of know certain things. Um, uh, yes, and so kind of, as it were, you know, behind every kind of charming Michael Caine, there's the Michael Caine in this film, you know, and it sort of sort sort of was ever thus. But there's a there's a what could be just just a banal sort of plot point that I'm not sure it's narratively plausible that the character the the Hoskins character wouldn't know that this kind of thing goes on. Mm. So just yeah, just in terms of um the sort of straightforward plausibility of of the plot and then how that relates to hanging a sort of theme of innocence you know if his ignorance is just not kind of convincing then it makes it makes the theme more complex um which also i think this all plays into then how the film it's yeah racial politics sexual politics those kind of things are all for me somehow um there's an impact on how we think of all of those yeah um as well yeah um the, the the film is, uh, I suppose, uh, li- likes Hoskins' character to be innocent because he ca- that means we can kind of deal with um, these issues to some extent, but they're also dealt with in a kind of abstracter, indirect way. I, I kind of agree with you about the. Um, the plausibility issue on the one hand i wondered if this is an example of a gangster kind of lieutenant being shown um the kind of dirty work that they might not have been aware of because in some gangster films you have a vague idea of the market they're involved in so drugs or prostitution or whatever going on in the background but the film will yeah. focus on the high stakes battles between rival gangster groups as we call out the mm. idea of um a, a criminal after at having actually to go into that market and see kind of what's happening yeah. and be a kind of cog in the wheel. Yeah. However, yeah. Um, the the idea that Hoskins had no idea, you know, is is the what was going on is quite difficult to deal mm. with, even though I mean, he's been it, in prison it, for so many years and presumably yeah. um, has become quite um, what's the word kind of inoculated kind of isolated from the world as a whole yeah 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 i mean it's, it's possible i say uh, you know as sometimes happens when you say something out loud then you go i wonder if i actually believe that thing i'm saying i now sort of think it's possible that i am making making heavy weather of this that precisely like you say maybe it is plausible that he would just simply not have asked himself those questions right it's quite easy to just carry on and just go well, what's actually happening with those girls and you know um but i suppose I feel the film, this is the kind of thing that's, that's very hard to kind of demonstrate when you're talking about kind of tone or the sort of demeanour of the film, but it just feels to me more that the film is revealing things to the audience and to Hoskins's character, which are deeply shocking, rather than revealing um, Hoskins's sort of culpable ignorance. Um, but I couldn't sort of prove that, and perhaps it's possible to read it, it, it in a different way. So perhaps I'm being unfair, but that's yeah. Was, I think it, that was just kind of my worry, you know. I think it's a it's a problem we should, yeah, we should note, and maybe it's a flaw of the film. Um, maybe it's an example of the film's kind of rhetorical structure, kind of 
unraveling a bit because it's clearly interested in issues of, of race and and of of gender and of inequality and to some extent is using Hoskins' innocence as a kind of device to explore those and point them out as bad. But at the same time, mm. I know we've dis- discussed before in terms of the casting, obviously the you yeah, kind of makeup of the cast is is itself slightly difficult to deal with, isn't it? It's, it's, it's unequal in the sense that the only black characters are kind of faces in a crowd or a, or a pimp or a, or a prostitute. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, Kathy Tyson's character is great. She's really, yeah, it says she's her, but it's, yes, it's a shame that when you have an actor of the quality of, of Clark Peters, that his pimp is simply a villain who's who sort of a smooth villain who gets kind of two lines. Um, I mean, he's quite effective at that role, but it, yeah, do you think, yeah, we, slightly unfortunate. Bef- before moving on, maybe we should talk briefly about, about Kathy Tyson because um, mm. I I hadn't seen her in any films before this one. I think this might have been her her breakout performance or kind of her, one of her first performances on screen. But I think it plays quite nicely with her naivety in in that regard because um, her character has to be both 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 sharp and at other times very vulnerable and mm. and and gentle. Um, and I believe that works quite nicely with the kind of dynamic that Hoskins is character is trying to imagine for himself as as a kind of parental paternal figure um you know nicely complimented by the fact that hoskins did coach um tyson through a lot of this film in terms of her acting style and her confidence on screen so i wonder if some of that awkwardness that between the two Mm. kind of is is quite fitting for the relationship yeah i think i i think her performance is really good i think the only other thing that i know that i've seen her in is slightly after this is the um Oh, now I've forgotten the name of the film. The Serpent and the and the something or other. It's a, a Wes Craven film about Haitian voodoo, which is with um, uh, Bill Pullman, which is not a great film. Uh, but she's good in that. Uh, actually, yeah, her and she's playing a playing a Haitian um, nurse, actually quite convincingly. Um, so yeah, it's a shame that. In a way, there's not kind of more of her from from this period, but I think you're right. I mean, all those dynamics, and, they, and particularly, well, no, I mean throughout the film, but particularly when they first meet, that yeah, the the his racism, but then also the gender, but then the class issue that you know he doesn't know how to dress and she's upper class. Of course, she's not actually upper class; she's just comfortable in these environments because she's learned how to be, and he hasn't. All all that stuff kind of is, I think, conveyed quite you know, adroitly and, and the performances are quite, it's quite funny as well, actually. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Of course, she's also yeah. quite tall in relation to Hoskins. I suppose a lot of the yeah. characters are, but she's particularly tall and it is a slam. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a slur, isn't it? That, that, that George uses that she's, a, what's the word? Um, tall, tall black tart. Is that the phrase he uses? Something like that. Yes. Which of course is a, is a phrase that is, gradually used less and less or more ironically mm. as it becomes clear that George actually really fancies her and this is part of yeah. his his yeah. racism is weirdly a kind of boyish kind of flirtation um mm. yeah or just a sort of yeah not dealing with the un- unknown yeah. yeah uh the serpent and the rainbow that's the name of the film ah, I very good. To, great title I couldn't remember um, uh, yeah it's based on a book by this American anthropologist called Wade Davis who was he was all into uh, ideas that um the zombies came came about in Haiti because they uh, 
uh, sort of ingested a certain kind of poison, which I think people kind of genuine now think is probably not true. But anyway, there was a there was a whole load, a load of interest in that in the late eighties, and so Wes Craven made a film about it. Anyway, that's not. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there isn't. There's a problem. Well, there's an issue as well. I think. It's, kind of ties into the things about we were saying earlier about the themes and the with with how uh so, so not with tyson's performance but with how her character is treated at the end of of the film this is sort of something else that i have slight ambivalence about because we're in brighton and there's interesting things where there's reference made to brighton rock and also to you know they live by night the nicholas ray film they watch a little clip of and that's quite interesting not quite sure you know what to make of that but um the way that Simone is left at the end of the film makes it feel to me like it's very much you go okay the film is about is about Bob Hoskins um and he's the one who gets you know who gets the the family in fact it's only just occurred to me now it's quite I suppose it's quite interesting in that it is a it is a uh you know this substitute family he's left with is not a heteronormative family because it's it's him him and Robbie Coltrane I I mean you know they're not lovers (laughs) in the in the film but there's Perhaps there's something of a gesture to sort of alternative, you know, alternative family types in quite perhaps a fairly weak way. But it's yeah, no, it's it's not my field um, of expertise. But certainly the the kind of buddy narrative has been discussed mm. as questioning those heteronormative narratives all the way from kind of White Christmas up to kind of contemporary gross out comedy. Mm. It's been discussed mm. in that context, mm. and that's a really interesting place to go although mm. i've not thought too much about it um, this kind of idea no. is robbie coltrane as wife or or husband but yeah but so i slightly felt because you do get this thing to what well, i think we'll see it in the clip that uh, we're about to watch there's this quite interesting thing where suddenly um there's sort of hints of a of a quite dark side to to Simone's character and it's something which is kind of thrown out there and then sort of left hanging but I think it's clear that when um when the young young girl Kathy is saved by Bob Hoskins and you know returns to Kathy Tyson there's this clear sense that Hoskins suddenly asks himself hold on is this an exploitative relationship have I you know um um I think that's really quite interesting but then it's yeah the way that she's just left then so you're like the um you know she's left having killed these two people with 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 this young woman um the film is obviously sort of too rich for this but it does it doesn't close down I mean, I'm not saying, of course, that films should should kind of close down ranges of interpretation. It's normally I'm normally all in favour of them opening up, but it sort of doesn't seem to completely close down the possibility that she's simply a manipulative, exploitative, murderous lesbian who Hoskins is is good to be to be clear of. And again, it's one of these things in the tone. Of course, you can say that's the thing which he is he's thinking. So that's quite interesting, you know, his own interpretation, but. Just the structure of the way she's abandoned there in that hotel room, and the film does give Hoskins some kind end of, you know, family resolution, and says it. It's seems to say this is has been the story of this man rather than the story of both of those two people. I was a little uncomfortable with, but it might be possible to read it differently. But that was how it just sort of felt. Um, you know, felt to me that it was asking to be 
red. Well, since Dominic, you've trailed the clip, I think that might be a good a good time to start to introduce it, and so we can think more about that um, ambiguity, uh, the kind of darker kind of shades of Simone's character, as well as the setting, which we've not discussed. You mentioned Brighton, but the clip um, I've chosen to watch from Mona Lisa covers both kind of suburban London um, and the motorway that they drive along to get to Brighton, um, also fittingly at a kind of turning point in the, in the narrative as well. Um, so, so this, if, if listeners want to want to pause the podcast and, and watch this clip before we talk about it, it happens quite neatly at one hour, 20 minutes, which is when Bob Hoskins, his character, George, rescues, very chivalric, he sort of rescues um, Kathy from, it's, I'm not sure it's a mansion, maybe a mansion or a kind of large townhouse somewhere in North London or Kent or somewhere like that. And then just watch that for five minutes up to the moment when George has left Kathy and Simone to their reunion in the cafe by the motorway and is discussing his relationship with um, with Simone um, uh, with with uh, Robbie Coltrane's character in the car. So the mo- the clip should end just at the moment where. George is looking back through Robbie Coltrane's car towards the cafe and sees Simone and Kathy quite nicely framed by two windows. Watching this again, Dominic, I'm starting to notice some similarities with Blow Up, <laughs> the Antonioni film, but both in that it's it's set in London, is interested in photography, or at least it kind of pinups and the kind of seedier side of that and also the fact that Hoskins is driving a cream 60s sports car <laughs> which we also see I think it's a Rolls-Royce and blow up but and it's not it's, this one isn't a Rolls but yeah I don't know what to make of that but <clears throat> something about the kind of also I think blow up is largely more the kind of parks and kind of greener side of, of London as well but the kind of genteel Aspect. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's an there's an interest, yes, in glamorousness and what lies un- underneath it, and that kind. Um, well, yeah. I mean, this film is more interested in what lies underneath it than than blow up. Maybe blow up is, is kind of pursuing other questions. But yeah, I think there's a connection. There's also connections to going back to kind of classic noir. You know, this the thing in this scene where you find out that there's you know not only these you know, prostitution of underage girls, but that they're also being uh being filmed or photographed or at least or at least they can be. And it has occurred to me, I'm not quite sure it makes sense because there's I mean Hoskins goes into this great space that's all lit with red, which implies a kind of dark room, but it has cameras in it, so why would it need to be a dark room? And then they're filming but but there are blinds down, so obviously the camera can't be filming. But I suppose the idea is that it it's also used for you know, it's not filming at that point, but yeah, j- just that reminds me of, you know, a film like like The Big Sleep, which even though it's it's not explicitly referred to as it is in the book, because it couldn't have been at that point, but nonetheless, there's you you have a drugged woman in a chair and there's a hidden camera, so it's it doesn't take much to work out what's going on, and so this yeah sense in which how noir uses um seems to use a certain sort of 
I don't I don't know pornography of vulnerable exploited women does kind of has a long tradition of uh, figuring a certain kind of evil I suppose in noir I think um or it certainly does in the big sleep and I, I I don't think that can be an isolated example although that's the only one that springs to mind yeah I think Neil Jordan um, quite liked Raymond Chandler as well um this this point about theatricalizing the mise-en-scene works in the mm. film's favor it reminded me of a dark room as well but also the red light district um yeah. you know in Amsterdam or Soho's version of with brothels and so on um yeah. and of course um Kathy is meant to be that that kind of height of vulnerability in this situation isn't she and it's done, yeah. it's done through through cosmetics, kind of her paleness and white mm. costuming, as well as the mm. set design, the kind of redness. I wonder if some of this yes. is also uh, so that's you know gives us a flavour of the kind of location and the noir tradition. But some of it is also quite fantastical. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it, well, he 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 literally sort of seems to kind of descend into this red <laughs> realm, right? It's yeah, surrounded by um, statues, classical mm. antiquity, and yeah. classical music. Um, mm. Yeah, I really like the music. There's, I really like the moment when you go because you have kind of sinister, sort of non-diegetic music kind of going on while he's creeping through through the garden, and then there's a moment when because there's there's opera playing in the house, and once he actually kind of gets downstairs, the non-diegetic music stops. But there's a moment where both of them are playing simultaneously, which I think is I mean you you don't really notice it unless unless you're watching in the way that we are, but it's. I think it's quite effective. It's quite kind of genuinely strange because um, you have this music which has been composed to sound, you know, sort of tense and unsettling. But then the opera, which is supposed to sound, you know, beautiful, sounds stranger because it's happening at the same time as this other. Right? It sounds stranger than the strange music. I just really like how that's how yeah. that's played with. Uh, is it is it part of the? Um the our estrangement from the film or the kind of um distanciation that goes on whenever jordan puts in a kind of soundtrack that doesn't seem to quite fit with the setting or i mean there are some examples where it really doesn't work like the genesis soundtrack in so which wasn't neil jordan's choice but um the nat king call kind of at the beginning and um mm the the classical antiquity here does does it does it even matter that we're in london anymore and that kind of hoskins is in this situation of rescuing a prostitute it does it become mm. something else something more kind of closer to his kind of imagined story or uh, yeah something to do with something there about the kind of invoking the past and kind of um, mm tradition um. i mean you get these um it's even i guess also maybe maybe something like chinatown is also a reference right there again there's a i mean you get the you know you get the old man who is who is who is abusing kathy in in this scene and yeah so i mean he's a minor character but um um and of course it doesn't have you know there's not the whole the whole incest plot here but there's something there again isn't there in chinatown there's there's kind of noah crosses kind of mansion and entering some sort of world of 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 evil which is sort of 
superficially not just respectable but sort of superficially grand you know more than uh more than respectable in fact more than not respectable like precisely the kind of people who don't have to care about about being respectable because they're far too important and rich yeah i suppose powerful part of part of that mise-en-scene is also about what what the owner has created for himself i suppose this kind of alternate reality so it is a mise-en-scene within the film world as well Yes, I think so, and intentionally like yeah. contrasting with another mm. very important mise-en-scene, Dominic, which is uh, Robbie Coltrane's uh, shoddy dock, mm. which in which he collects kitsch versions of the kind of ornamentation that um, mm. is here in, in style and on show. Yes. Um, yeah, because you could talk about the this part of the endearing. Sorry, the part of the endearingness of his character is that I'm not sure he's collecting them as kitsch, is he? Or it's there's an ambiguity as to how he, which is it's quite funny, <laughs> quite hard <laughs> hard to, to sort of pin down. If you've not seen the film, uh, listeners, his 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 dockyard kind of apartment, if you want to call it that, is kind of like walking into a Bruce Nauman exhibit or something. It's <laughs> weird neon lights and. What else do we also have? Also, Jeff Koons or something, yeah. Yeah, plastic spaghetti. Um, he, uh, he has green, green, luminous Virgin Marys, but then he appears to also kind of genuinely want to treat them with respect. It's, yeah, it's quite fun. I mean, he's obviously not an idiot. He knows that, that they're kit, but yeah, there's, there's, there's a fun play with that, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think the sequence that you've chosen is a really, is a really terrific one. Um, I also like it's sort of thinking about things like noir in color. Like it's really, it really works really well when they go to the Happy Eater. The sort of cinematography is just it's very it's the colors and things. It's just like you know the kind of day that you don't want to film on because it's just flat. <laughs> and I think it, it's it's really used really effectively, right? So it's it's not you know exciting noir kind of shadows and drama or so it's just like it looks like a ray a, a, a gray a gray tuesday on on the whatever that the m m60 which no that's manchester what's the motorway down to brighton you know it just looks drab but yeah. that that really works to accentuate the sort of kind of bleakness yeah, we're talking about maybe a British tradition of realism as well. There are films mm. that go back further, like Night in the City, which try to inject London with a kind of noir sensibility by largely shooting at night, and in which the dockyards feature quite prominently. But there are also other films, like The Apocrypt File, which I've already mentioned, which have an intentionally uh, downcast skies, and, uh, sorry, overcast skies and sort of downbeat tone. Um I think yes. it works. It works in the film's favour, particularly when you enter into that sumptuous, materially sumptuous world. Yeah, um, yeah. The unveiling. Yeah, of- no, I think what I, what, what I really like. Sorry, just I mean, this is this is not to disagree with what you just said. I think just what I really like about and it is like you, you're right. It's a sort of transition out of these different worlds. So you come from having gone into this kind of hellish world, which is yeah. I mean, it's meant to be to be realistic of course but it's otherwise it wouldn't be horrifying but it's also elements of the fantastical but it's, all, it's almost just the way that the drabness is not i just really like that it's not like there will be ways of underlining it you know so you could be like look how gloomy this is but it you know even if that's done through an overcast sky rather than yeah rather than dramatic nighttime shadows but it almost it 
it doesn't even do that. It just looks quite dull. Yeah. <laughs> but I think very, you know, not through any any lack of skill in the cinematography, but it's kind of quite brave, I think. I mean, brave might be a, be a little strong, but it's not, um, you know, it is open to the risk of being mistaken for just sort of not terribly interesting. <laughs> yeah. So um, there are, I, I think there's the there's there's room to say that was a stylistic choice albeit a subtle mm. one i mean it, there are mm. other moments in the film which have quite stark lighting so yeah. there are yes. there are lovely kind of twilights what do they call mm. it magic hour kind of yeah uh, moments when hoskins is returning to london at the beginning of the film yes there's also yes. like stark uh kind of dark blues and fiery kind of oranges around King's Cross. It has this cross. nighttime thing that I associate with precisely that period. Yeah, precisely like you say, these quite non, non-realist non kind of, precisely kind of nighttime with artificial, and it's very sort of blues and kind of golden. Like the, the Conformista or something like that, maybe. Yes, or my reference point for some reason is, which is only just after, isn't it, 1989 is, um, I think, is um, Abel Ferrara as King of New York is nice. all... Yeah. All, all the nighttime stuff is either blue or orange. I mean, in a more exaggerated way than this, but I don't know if there are there are any technical things as well about sort of film stock and lighting ar- around this time as well as that that I don't know enough about that stuff. But it seems to, um, yeah, this yeah, the, seems this to is connect. this is towards the really the kind of got the kind of later years of Eastman color um, mm. uh, stock, which is replaced. By this point, we've definitely replaced Technicolor, um, mm. and allow yeah has has kind of those affordances of kind of ch- cheaper kind of um, color shooting and more I mean, one, less sensitive, I suppose, than Technicolor requires less lighting and, right. and so on. One could even I mean this is this is a silly. We shouldn't. I'll just kind of say this just because I'm obsessed obsessed with the film. But this is only seven years after after Tarkovsky's Stalker, which is also Eastman color. Right, but also there's a way. In, I mean, this is film has almost nothing to do with Stalker, but there is a way in in Stalker that it uses like the color is so intense, but it's actually quite often quite sort of drab. If you're, I mean, not in the monochrome sequences, but in some of the things of the grasses and things, um, if you were to sort of you know try and describe it, I don't know, yeah, objectively, whatever that would mean, but it's not intense kind of saturated greens, but yet. Yeah, Tarkovsky does some something with this, and there are there is something in this in the way that it can they can use that that color to have the range of things which which we've been saying. Um, I, I like the Tarkovsky reference because it takes us back to the fantastical and the imaginary as well. Mm. Um, the 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 reds made me think of Red Riding Hood and Neil Jordan's Company of Wolves, and that seems quite mm. fitting for this moment mm. in not a forest, but in someone's kind of leafy back garden. Man yeah. going in and rescuing this girl, and she did. He doesn't cloak her in a kind of red riding hood, does he? But no. you get this idea of maybe him rescuing her from the wolf, you know? <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Not to mention what we probably haven't got time now to talk about, but all the interesting things, even just in this one sequence we've watched with um, with different kind of 
glass or different kind of windows and framings like right when he sees Catherine the old man through there's this kind of shock almost like a jump scare moment when he pulls the curtain up and they're right there but it's a it's a one-way window so it's a mirror from the other side and how that's used and then as you pointed out that yeah interestingly later you get yeah in the last moment of the clip we watched it's it, it, it's very it's made very evident that you're that Hoskins is is watching the two of them through a car window, through another window. So there's like a frame within frame, which is yeah. I've got. I'm it not actually... quite sure what the sort of thematic connection is, but it's somehow quite. It seems to be important because it's yes. I've got it blown up here in front of me, Dominic, on my on my third screen. Very fancy. And what I'm struck by is the distance created by two panes of glass and mm. the aperture of the car window and very much this sense that George has fallen out of favor or kind of can't get close to the physical intimacy that you see between yes. Simone and, uh, and Kathy there. Um, There's also quite complicated reflections, aren't there? If, if you were really to analyze it in terms of what's reflecting in which, in, in which, in which pane of glass. Yeah, we could go into more detail. You can see a bit of the roof of the car, but is that the thing that you're seeing reflected in the, the in the in the Happy Eaters window? Yeah, so it's it's sort of. I think you're right. It's proxy, but but it's also very clear that they're physic physically close. You can see just you know the kind of focal length. You can see that in fact. You know they're only a few feet away, but yeah, but there's complicated. Yeah, perhaps that will be a, a way of reading of reading the sort of the metaphors of it, right? That 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 it it visually shows that they're both literally close but far away, or separated in a range of complicated ways. I don't know. Perhaps I'm now going to. Um... No, I, no, I like that very much, and I like yeah. the the contrast between the um, shockingly transparent one way mirror right and that's this, good. the kind of the complications that arise when you put two panes of glass slightly distance apart mm. and the reflections don't have to be very precisely orchestrated but they create more kind of confusion um yeah. and, and distance within that within that frame um yes yeah. so it's, yes it's kind of if you were to say like it's not a complicated image to understand you see it and it's fine but if you were yes if you were to try and explain it all, you would then find that it's much, it's much, much more confusing. Which perhaps also also plays into the themes. I mean, it occurred to me that if I also linking back, you know, one more time to this, these motifs or these of uh, ignorance and innocence and that kind of thing. This is interesting in this clip when George is talking to to Kathy and she's saying she can't she can only eat ice cream now presumably because of her drug addiction or something I'm not exactly clear um and she's saying you know you don't know much and he's saying like no I don't um that does kind of explicitly I think kind of call up those themes that we were saying the film the film addresses to do with yeah the relationship between ignorance and innocence and it just occurred just while watching it it also occurred there's something about about imagination as well, which maybe does make his character less culpable. I'm, I'm sort of talking myself into thinking that this is more interesting. There's a you know, sort of um, if the Hoskins character is just, as a rule, just is just sort of not a very imaginative man, then 
while on the one hand, you know, to sort of not have thought about quite what must have been going on, you know, in the thing, in the dealings that he's sort of tangentially part of to do with prostitution and all that other, other sorts of things. Um, on the one hand, of course, that must be a moral failing, you know, just not to have thought this through. On the other hand, to say that it's a moral failing of someone because they don't have the imagination to think of deeply brutal, horrible things seems a strange thing to say, right? To say that we should all have the imagination to be able to to come up for ourselves with <laughs> real evil. That, that can't be right, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Um... I don't know, and I think that I, I I think I think this scene does make it clear that those themes are sort of I don't know the language of explicit and implicit is perhaps not helpful, but they're they're not you know we're not reading them into the film. I think it's clear that the film is working with them. It seems to me. Yeah, yeah. I sense you're maybe warming to the film or finding more to say about it than you might immediately have thought about. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm um, thinking that it's because it's a question of a question of again these things that are so interesting but so hard to pin down about yeah how much of this complexity is the film you have to say something like is the film aware of you know uh, and uh, yes I think my feeling was there were places where I wanted the film to to be aware of things which I wasn't quite sure I could convince myself that it was but yeah just watching this clip now I'm I'm thinking that perhaps I was unfair on it yeah I suppose we've mentioned mentioned authorship quite a lot as well i've been mentioning neil jordan quite a few times and we we talked about the actors owning their performances and maybe that maybe we shouldn't have have to rely on intentionality to kind of find value in the film's uh style um mm. maybe actually the solution is to look more carefully at the characters interactions and the kind of you know, rather than the sort of just assuming that everything is very carefully constructed and there yes. for for a reason, actually seeing how it plays out and whether it overall, yeah, might I have mean that gets into the very complicated question of sort of what it means to have intention in a film, and yes, um, but that's another conversation for another day, I think. But Indeed. yeah, I I think you're right. Shall we round it off? Yeah, great. Um, thanks, listeners, for joining us on this journey through Mona Lisa. Um, if you, you know, uh, want to join us for the next podcast, that would be fantastic as well. To, to stay in touch, you can follow us on Twitter at Discursion Film. You know, do, do tweet us. Let us know what you think of Mona Lisa and whether you liked Bob Hoskins' character or kind of agree or disagree with us on these issues of innocence and um, performance styles. And also, please do um, subscribe. You can hear us on Spotify, on Acast, and also Apple Podcasts. Um, but until next time, stay well. And thank you very much. Thanks. <laughs>